to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and joined with me is my beautiful wife, Erica, the weaker vessel. Hello, everyone. If you want to get to know more about us, guys, we're a part of the Reformed Rebel Network. Yes, we are. So go check us out on the website, in your podcast feed, on your social media. We're on all of it. Check out Reformed Rebel Network. We got a bunch of podcasts, a bunch of content on the website as far as blogs and all that. And even more new stuff coming up. Yeah. So if you like what you hear here, what if you, you like <laughs> if you like what you hear on this podcast, <laughs> then you're gonna love the rest of the content we put out. You can also financially support us, patreon.com slash reform rebel network. We would greatly appreciate the support. And of course you're gonna love the content we put out today because as our guest, we have the one and only Greg Strawbridge. Yeah. So we hope you guys enjoy this uh interview, this conversation that we had with him. Talking about pedo communion. Giving communion no to your kiddos. No one's going to disagree with us. Not a, not a person. Why would anybody? You can't disagree with Greg. <laughs> oh, man. Greg Super with two Gs. That's right. Super smart guy. And um, he's been gracious enough to agree to come on again and uh, and talk with us about this uh, issue this time. So Yeah. All right. All right, everybody. Enjoy this interview. All right, everybody. Well, we have our guest with us now. Uh, for this episode, Dr. Greg Strawbridge, welcome to Awakening Reformation Podcast again. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Just somebody maybe hasn't listened to the first time we had you on. Do you mind um, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, and uh, sure. maybe anything recent that you would like to tell people about? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, I've been doing this for 18 years. My background before that was I was a PCA minister, and I created a website that has about 25,000 recordings on it called wordmp3.com in the year 2000. Uh, I believe it was the very first aggregator type of site for for audio recordings like that on the, online. And um, I have a number of talks and papers and all the ETS, uh, Evangelical Theological Society recordings. We have 9,000 of these academic uh, conferences. And wow. so, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a husband and father. I have a wonderful wife uh, who is a first grade teacher at a classical Christian school. I have three daughters in their 20s. One is married, and we just had our first grandchild Congrats. Uh, a couple Aww. of months ago. Yeah, that's great. All right, awesome. So um, tonight we asked you on to specifically talk about the topic of pedo communion. I guess just to to start off right away, the reason why you came to mind is um, you were an editor of a book that is called The Case for Covenant Communion. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I edited that and it was published in 2006, The Case for Covenant Communion. So, you know, uh, kind of an expert uh, on the topic and um, and you share a, a view that is not uh, very popular um, especially within uh, reformedum and Presbyterian circles, but it's a view that we have come to embrace, and you have been helpful in in that journey that we have been on. So, um, I guess at the at the beginning here, could you just give ba- your basic uh, definition of uh, what pedo communion is? Yes. Now, it starts with asking who is in the church. What qualifies a person to be part of the church? 
the Westminster Confession says uh, believers and their children are the church. And I think that if you work that theological principle through, you then uh, in, involve infant baptism. And then for consistency's sake, you have a communion for anyone that can actually physically eat it. So infant communion or pedo communion is what that's usually called. Mm -hmm. Pedo baptism, pedo communion. The problem in the Reformed world today is that <clears throat> from the from the time of the Reformation, we always look back to guys like Calvin and such and and Calvin argued against paedophilia, and so most of the Reformed world since that time, the Protestant Reformation time, has been uh, has has actually denied uh, pedo communion or, or communion is, that communion is properly given to children. So that becomes like a traditional problem, like there's a traditional um, there's there's a tradition uh, that that's that you have to overcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question is, is, of course, we also believe that it's sola scriptura. So can you overcome it uh, by means of the Bible? Right. Is, mm -hmm. Does the Bible teach the inclusion of children? That's where we go to for our source of authority. Um, but just to note on the historical thing, just I'd like to make this point. Yeah. Um, someone said to me recently, said, I don't believe in paedo communion because it's just such a you know minority position. Um, it's not the his, you know, it's not the historic position of the church. And yeah. I said, wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong. It, it is the historic position of the church. The Eastern Orthodox churches, which have a, a decent claim to being very consistent uh, traditions that go back to very early, for very early church, they still practice paedo communion. Mm -hmm. All the Eastern Orthodox yeah. churches believe it. The Western church practiced it all the way up until the Fourth Lateran Council that started in the 1200s. Mm -hmm. And the Lord Fourth Lateran Council is no friend to the Protestant Reformation nope. because they removed the cup from the laity. Mm -hmm. So we're taking our cues from the medieval Catholics that we had to rebel against later in the 1500s right. on the question of children's inclusion and communion. And from that time forward, then there was, in fact, um, you know, a lot of medieval, gross medieval... Uh, problems with, within the Western Church, um, and the Protestants came along. Well, there were Proto-Protestants, and the Proto-Protestants, like John Huss, one of his main concerns, one of the things he was burned at the stake for, is he objected to the cup going to only the priesthood and not to the laity because hmm. it it had the effect of excommunicating young children that could only take. Uh, the cup that could only take some, usually like dip your finger in the wine and and give it to your infant child. Yeah, he he basically started a war over that. Wow. And, you know, John Huss is a good guy in my my book. Yeah, uh, proto reformer. So it's unfortunate that the um, debates about sacramentology in the Reformation. What ended up happening is the the Protestants generally began to defend the Roman Catholic view. And I think it's just a strange thing. There is a there's a book that that I like that that talks about uh, Protestantism. It says, look, you know, Protestants fought like tigers to restore the cup to the laity. But look at what happened in the Protestant churches. They don't even have weekly communion. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, by the way, Luther has some statements in which he uh, commends uh, pedo communion. So Luther is. It's not like he consistently developed that, but he has statements where it's clear that he believed it early on. Hmm. There's a, a, a lesser known reformer named Musculus 
and he he embraced Pedo communion. So it's not as though there were no Reformed people, right? But they more or less just took their cue from the Western Roman Catholics, which is quite a shame. And you know, as I said, the Protestant point of view, of course, is sola scriptura. So can we prove it uh, from the Bible? That's the real question. And uh, I will proceed to do that in a minute <laughs> when you ask me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well. So yeah, let's do that. I know that um, um, much of the argument is supported by an understanding of the continuity uh, between the Old and New Testament, Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So could you could you help us understand that a little bit? Yes. So again, we have to say who's in the church. Okay. Right. Um, now it turns out there was a church in the Old Testament, you know, and the church in the Old Testament very plainly and very obviously included children. They received the entrance sign mm-hmm. by means of circumcision, male representation for the household, by the way. Right. Uh, no female circumcision, of course. But they also were participants in the sacrificial system. Um, the peace offering was a meal that they had. They made a, made an offering, and then mm-hmm. they ate part of the food, part of the meat. And that was uh, freely available for all members of the family, mm-hmm. not just adults. Of course, the the Passover is a form of peace offering. The Passover is a is a peace offering uh, meal, and we're told in the, the case of Passover that children are present, and that the choice of the lamb is for every uh, every mouth that's in the home. So it, it's pretty clear that Passover included children. Obviously, an infant can't eat lamb and bitter herbs and stuff like that but we're saying there's no there's no arbitrary mm-hmm. like you've got to be 12 years old and you got to mm-hmm. confess your faith or right. something like that there's no uh transition but here's something else i think this is really really important read the verses before the passover inst- institution in exodus 12 all this going back and forth between moses and pharaoh right yeah let my people go let my people go well read it really carefully pharaoh says look the men can go Moses says, we've got to go to uh, the wilderness mm. to have a feast to worship our God. Yeah. And and let my, you know, let us go do this. And Pharaoh said, Your your men can do that. And Moses says, No, we have to have our little ones. That's awesome. He makes the argument. The very Passover event was premised on a response to Pharaoh that our little ones must be included in this feast. I mean, just read the verses. I mean, that, that ought to be plain. Yeah. So now the question is, if they're involved in the sacrificial rites, if they are involved in the entrance rite of circumcision, if they're involved in the feast uh, that, that was there, if they cross the Red Sea of baptism mm-hmm. and they go to the wilderness and they get bread from heaven, because that's the only thing they want to eat for a while, then are they fully participating? Yes, they are. What about the New Testament? Well, the argument goes by Baptist. Well, sure, children were included in the Old Testament, but, and this is a really compelling argument, that's the Old Testament, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> compelling argument. Well, it's brilliant. That's brilliant logic. But it's like, okay, um, okay, so can you prove the inclusion of children in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? And And the answer to that is, it's perfectly demonstrable, but but here's I'll just give you a few examples. The new covenant promise itself, right? Jeremiah 31. This is often um, touted to be 
excluding children because they can't, uh, they don't know the Lord, they don't uh, have their sins forgiven, and such as that, right? So it's often kind of like, oh, you know, Jeremiah excludes children. Yeah. But just just read the verses again before and after Jeremiah thirty one. So for example, the the new covenant promise proper in Jeremiah thirty one. We'll pull it up here. Jeremiah 31, 31, okay, is, uh, sorry, <laughs> I have trouble with my Bible program here. No problem. Um, but the, the, the verses before that, so look at the top of the chapter, right? Jeremiah 31 starts with, at that time, I will be God of all the families of Israel, they shall be my people. There's explicit inclusion of families. Families include children. Yes, they do. And then he says they're going to come back to the land. This is the post big post exilic promise, of course. And then when you get to you know the description of it, it's uh, verse eight: the women, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, will return here. So the new covenant promise itself explicitly includes children. When you get to the to the text of 31, 31, then you read the, you know, I'm going to make a new covenant with you and so forth. That famous passage, behold, the days are coming uh, mm -hmm. when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm going to take them uh, it, and my covenant, which is which they broke, Although I was a husband to them, I mean, that's the whole survey of, of the prophets right there, that mm -hmm. the people of Israel <clears throat> break covenant with God. And so in, the, in the famous words, I will put my law within them and my heart, I will write it. Now, what is claimed by modern Baptists of the New Covenant theology variety is, look, this is talking about regeneration. And I would just say, look, this is talking about the families of Israel. <laughs> and that's what it actually says, the families of Israel. So yeah. they don't meet the spiritual qualifications here. Well, uh, John the Baptist met the spiritual qualification in his mother's womb, did mm -hmm. he not? Yeah. Um, but then keep reading about the explicit inclusion of children. Um, thus says the Lord, verse 35. So remember the classic passage is 31 to 34. 35 says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, hmm. so repeat, by the way, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. All right, this is talking about Israel. We know who Israel is. They do have children. They're included. And not only that verse, but just look at all of the New Covenant verses that we would say fit into, quote, the New Covenant promises. Almost all of them. I, I have about 20 in my booklet on baptism that I've brought out. But there's at least about 20 that actually say children are included in these New Covenant promises, right? That's why Peter could get up on the day of Pentecost and say, uh, the promise is to you and your children. Yeah. Admit that. Um, and to those who are far off. In other words, this is a missionary, you know, the New Covenant has a number of strands in it. One of them is the whole world is going to come to believe. Mm -hmm. So this kind of missionary strand. But it also is very expressly including children. So. New Testament, 
when we get to the New Testament, do we see a radical change here? Do we see a change of the exclusion of children? Well, there's certainly no statement that excludes children. Right. Um, everybody has to admit that. So, yeah, but we don't see infant baptism. We don't see infant baptism. But remember, infant circumcision was the result of the household of Abraham being circumcised and then those born into the household on the eighth day mm -hmm. were adopted. Right? So it's household first. So now we look at the New Testament and say, okay, were households included? Well, not only were they included, nine individuals you can name, six of them are household cases. Yep. Mm -hmm. The t three of them, the three that are not household cases, are um, Saul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who doesn't apparently have a family, according to 1 Corinthians 7, mm -hmm. um, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, why weren't the Ethiopian eunuchs children? <laughs> right? Might be right. Children? Might be in the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, the, the other person, the only other person that could have had a household um, that didn't have it baptized is Simon the sorcerer. That's oh, yeah. it. I mean, now people can dispute on on one of them, on one of those six, and that would be Gaius. I'm just got a really quick mm -hmm. little argument about that. So in first, in uh, Acts 18, it says that Paul's in Corinth. Many of the Corinthians believed and were being baptized, including Crispus and his household. All right. Then in First Corinthians one. Verses 14 and following, it says, Paul is making this defense about, you know, don't think you're all that because you were baptized by Apollos and so forth, or me, or Peter. And he says, I baptize none of you except Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know that I baptized any other. The word other is a pronoun, pronominal called uh, alas, is the word. Mm -hmm. It usually refers to the noun. The most uh, the noun that's you know before it. Listen to the words again: Crispus, Gaius, household of Stephanus. Any other? Any other what? Any other household? Yeah. You say, well, no, no, no. It doesn't say that. I've I've had this debate with people. No, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't say it. it could be a mixed list. Okay, of individuals and households. Well, but Crispus had a household. We know mm -hmm. that. That's what Acts eighteen says. So. Gaius's household is not mentioned. Crispus's household is not mentioned. But we know Crispus had a household. Now think about the logic of this. Paul is in Corinth. Crispus, the synagogue leader, big important guy, believes with his household. That's the language. With his household. So even on Baptist principles, maybe they're all above the age of you know fourteen or something. <laughs> but all of them are baptized. It says they're all they're they are all believing. And then it says, I baptize Crispus. So it doesn't say explicitly in Acts 18 that he baptized Crispus. It just says Crispus believed with his household, and many Corinthians were being baptized. So he's included, um, I would say not explicitly, but certainly implicitly by saying many Corinthians were baptized. Certainly if he believed, he was baptized. Now imagine, Paul says, I baptize none of you except Crispus. Did Paul, when he did the baptism of Crispus, baptize only Crispus? Or did he baptize the whole household? In the same event, well, it's almost absurd to think that Paul did whatever you do for baptism in the first century, and then he called up Silas. Hey, Silas, finish the work here. Do baptize all these other people in this household. I mean, no. I mean, it, it is hard to believe that that Paul only baptized Crispus, right? 
So that's why he can say, I baptize Crispus, because he's thinking of Crispus' clan, Crispus' household. And if Gaius had a household, he would be thinking of Gaius' household. And we're told explicitly that Stephanus does have a household. Right. So I think Gaius is, there's no explicit statements, but Gaius, because it says any other, and other refers to household, and Crispus had a household, I think the weight of the evidence is pretty strongly in favor that Gaius was a household case. And if it's the same Gaius mentioned in Romans, he is host to the, to the entire church. Households back in that day often had servants. They had uh, uh, extended families often. And if you could be host to the whole church of Rome, you probably were a person of some means. Yeah. And at the very least, you had servants. By the way, uh, people say, well, everybody believed. Okay, on the face of it, let's just say everybody believed. Okay, but think about who is in a household. What, what tends to happen is people will say, John Piper said this, for example. Um, he said, well, look, you know, we, the household baptism argument, he says, look, in our house, in our church, uh, if we said, hey, you know, Bob and Sue were being baptized, well, you know that Bob and Sue don't have any infant children. So there could be plenty of households that didn't have infant children in them, right? And I was in a debate uh, back in August. It's it's on Word B three with a with a Church of Christ guy on baptism. Okay. He said he, 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 did a, he did a typical debating technique. He goes, "Okay, raise your hand if you have an infant." And there are like fifty people, and nobody raised their hand, right? Or maybe one person did something. He said, "Look, see, there's no infants, so the argument that there's infants in his household is wrong." By the way, that's not my argument. I'm not arguing that infants are in the household. Right. I'm arguing that the household is a proper recipient of baptism and then right. those born into the household, just like Abraham. That's my argument, not the present composition of any household. Um, but anyway, so he said, oh, raise your hand. Well, then afterwards, uh, when the question answer session came, one of my uh, students and friends in the church said, hey, um, you know, to the other debater said, listen, can we redo that, you know, raising your hand? How many, and he said, how many, he said, what at what age would you baptize someone? And this is a Baptist guy. He said, oh, probably they'd have to be at least, I think he said, nine or ten years old. <laughs> and then he said, okay, could everyone raise their hand if they have children that are under nine years old? And <laughs> virtually everybody raised their hand, right? You know, so here's the thing. You got Luke is telling us how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to the eschatos yeah. um, place in the earth, the eschatos gay, the last place on earth. He his baptism cases follow that exactly. There's Jerusalem, Judea, there's Samaria, and then there's the apostle to the Gentiles, who is Paul. Then the first Gentile baptism, Cornelius, and then you got all the baptisms that happen after Acts um, ten, which are all in Gentile areas. <clears throat> well, when you look at that, I mean, if you say Luke is telling the story, yeah, and he's telling the story about. Households being baptized in the first century, where we have a very extended understanding of household, not a nuclear family version of household. And he says, he gives us all this stuff, and he picks the six households that have no underage children in them to tell the story. That is just an astonishing uh, claim, right? That yeah. To think that he selects the anomalous households. And there was a debate back in the 50s by a couple of sort of continental theologians. And one of them argued that the words, the word oikos, which is a house, explicitly has reference to children. Like you wouldn't use oikos if there were no children involved. Huh. Now, you know, that they had this debate and it kind of goes back and forth. 
But yeah. I mean, a good case can be made. I would just say what, what really you have to do if you want to assess the, the role of the baptism cases and household cases is you have to say, what was a household like in the first century? Well, Abraham's household was included 318 fighting men that were born into his household. And it obviously included children because we, we know that, right? 318 men born into his household. So read Genesis 17. That's called his household. Mm -hmm. It's called his house. Yeah. Think about the centurion. This guy's in charge of 100 to 600 soldiers. His house is his base, basically. Do you think he had, was a nuclear family of 2.5 American children? <laughs> no. I mean, it was a large household with servants in it, almost certainly. Do you think Gaius, who's host to the whole church, his household is limited to like, uh, you know, 1.5 children? No. Do you think the jailer of the city of Philippi does not have a household with servants in it? And the servants could very well have had children, obviously. Yep. So the whole idea that like, well, the Philippian jailer didn't have any children in his household because it says they all rejoiced together and they heard the word. Well, look, I mean, did did any people in Israel um, have little children when they were hearing the the reading of Scripture in the days of Ezra? Did they not mm -hmm. have yeah. um, children when they were being told by Jeremiah of the promise of return? I mean, we we just use generic language um, for this. So I I just think once again, like the case that children are included in baptism is just overwhelming to me if you just look at who was baptized. Right. Okay. And again, it's household, then those born into the household. Yeah. Under the household head, then those born into it. Okay, with communion now. Well, let me stop there, but I'll, I'll go to communion now. I <laughs> have to set the stage with baptism because we yep. only have a couple of passages on communion. Yes. So, yeah, and that, you know, as much as you just laid already, and I believe is very convincing and very helpful, we, we haven't even talked about. First Corinthians seven, where the children of a believer are just called holy. And then what do you got to do with that? And we don't, we don't need to get into that. Um, but that's, that's another really strong, uh, case yeah, for, sure. uh, for children inclusion there. So, yeah. Well, so ch children so. are included express expressly. I mean, when I say expressly or explicitly, I mean, we're told that children are included in the kingdom. Jesus says yep. such are the kingdom. That means these and those with like attributes. Right. The word is toyutas there. They're included in the kingdom. We're told um, that they're included in the church. That's why Paul would write to Corinth and I'm sorry, to, um, excuse me, to Ephesus and to Colossians. He, he would say, you know, husbands, wives, children, yep. mm -hmm. slaves, and masters. The children were part of the church. So if he says children, he's addressing them as part of the church. So they're included in the kingdom. They're including in the, in the church. And as I've already indicated, they're explicitly included in the new covenant promises. So give it up, you know, Baptist. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. and, and so you know what the argument back on that one is? Yeah, but look at the new covenant. They don't meet the spiritual qualifications on it. Yep. And I would say that's an inference from your interpretation of what you think Jeremiah is talking about. It's an inference. Right. Right. You might be right that it requires you know, some, something like Calvinistic regeneration. That's a, a possible way of reading it. There are other ways of reading it. I've got a paper on the New Covenant that's very technical in, uh, on Word of P3 if you want to hear more detail on this. But okay. 
Um, that's an in, that's an inference. They can't meet the spiritual qualifications. There's no verse that says that. But I have verses that say explicitly, children are in the covenant. Children yeah. are in the kingdom. Children are in the church. Those are things that are... Ex so what happens is the Baptist says, I trust my inferences more than the explicit statements on, on this subject. Right. <laughs> and say, like, okay, well, that's a bad hermeneutic. <laughs> yeah. you know? That is not a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's not do that. Yeah, I don't think you. I don't think you should trust your inference when you've got explicit texts that reject your inference. Your 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 inference. So, okay, what else do we want to do here? So, so First Corinthians eleven at the end. I, I hear, yeah. and, and this may be the the most common um, opposition to a, a covenantal pedo communion because the um, I know you've probably been in the thick of it too, but pedo communion became a very 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 hot button issue. Um, within the last 15 years, I'd say, maybe 20 years. Um, yep. And it's largely a Presbyterian problem. I think a lot of people, which is probably why we embraced it, a lot of people that are Reformed Baptists that do end up becoming Presbyterian actually do end up embracing Pado communion because they, um, uh, they see things, they see the continuity there. But, but you know, yep. the, the more... Um, born and bred. Yeah, born and bred Presbyterian, good way to put it, babe. Um, uh, have this very strong opposition, and they usually go to First Corinthians eleven. Um, did you want me to read it, or do you want to read it, talk about it, or you can read it if that would be helpful for people just to okay. hear? Okay, yeah. yeah. So what we're talking about is First Corinthians eleven, starting in verse twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, sorry, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And the argument yes. goes, an infant can't do this, therefore we have to, you know, we have to uh, pastorally, uh, you know, make a, make a decision here and not let them, you know, not let them participate, but... Uh, what do you, yes. what's the explanation? Well, yes. And, and I want to encourage you um, to buy the Case for Covenant communion book. You can buy a PDF of it at Word or P3. We also have a, a reprinted uh, paperback copies. It's the second chapter written by Jeffrey J. Myers, a PCA minister in Missouri. He mm -hmm. writes, Presbyterian, examine thyself, restoring children to the table. Now, here is the, the basic argument in a nutshell. The context is that Paul is saying, you guys are doing the Lord's Supper in a divisive way. He says people are left behind. Some people are getting drunk. He says that this is divisive. And what is his argument? It starts in chapter 10. The argument is the bread which we break is not a communion, is, is not the bread we break, a communion in the body of Christ, because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. That is the starting of the argument about communion. And what he's saying is, you can think that you're all spiritual, but you can be judged of God. That's why he, cite, he cites the Red Sea and then the manna in the wilderness and the water, which was Christ, which parallel, of course, baptism, mm -hmm. uh, bread and, and the water that, that is Christ from the rock that is Christ. And he says, 
fear because 20 something thousand of these people fell in the desert because they were judged, even though they received water from the rock, which was Christ. That's a high yeah. <laughs> standard of spirituality <laughs> there. Um, you know, we, you're drinking a, a cup that Jesus actually made the water into wine right in front of you. And now you're drinking that. that it's that level of, of spirituality. And he says, but don't, don't you know, you can still be judged. It starts there and it moves through 11. And in 11, he's saying, you guys are treating the Lord's Supper like you're not part of one body. And so he says, you, when you do this, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And therefore, he says, examine yourself to discern the body. Now, what's the body he's talking about? He's talking about the body he's talking about back in chapter 10, not the metaphysical presence of the body of Christ in the bread. He's talking about the body of Christ as in the people in the congregation. You're one body. Therefore, you participate in this Lord's Supper as one people, as one loaf. You're one body, you're one loaf. And you are not doing it because you're despising uh, probably the poor is probably what's going on there. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're going ahead and you're not leaving things for those that are needy, um, et cetera. This is obviously a context where the Lord's Supper is more than just uh, a token representative meal, but a, but a full on meal. Um, it's in that context he's saying you have to examine yourself to see if you're in the body, to see if you can discern the body. Now, that means, of course, that either you have to say children are not in the body of Christ, because what it says in chapter 10, the bread which we break, is it not communion in the body of Christ? There is one bread, for we who are many are one body. Are mm -hmm. people saying children are not in the body of Christ? Well, Baptists can say that. Right. Um, right. And, and consistently practice and say, nope. You know, once you're baptized by profession, then you come to the table. Right. Um, but uh, can you say that if you believe in infant baptism? If you believe infant baptism brings a person into covenant relationship and into the body of Christ, then how can you say they cannot or have no basis for participation? What Paul is doing is he's correcting their abuse. And if you read it carefully, he never says, therefore, don't eat. This is the way we read it. This is the way the Calvinistic tradition has read it for a long time. It's Paul says, don't you know you're going to be guilty if you do this in an unworthy manner? If you can't discern the body, therefore don't eat. He never says don't eat. He says the people that are being judged, quote, eat and drink judgment to themselves. There is not a word in 1 Corinthians 11 that suggests or requires that people are excommunicated and are, are not going to take communion. Mm -hmm. There's no statement that says that. That's a that's a pure inference, hmm. which I think is a wrong inference. I think it's a very wrong inference. He says, go ahead. If you do it in an unworthy mate, you're going to eat and drink judgment to yourself. Now, let, let's step back from the details of the text. I, I, I say, read Jeff Meyer's chapter on this because it's a very, very compelling yep. uh, point. But, but if we step back from it, here's the thing. The... <laughs> The situation in Corinth is calling for um, seeing the body of Christ as it is. Now, read 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, and 13, and 14. The whole thing is you're in the body. We're all baptized by one spirit into the body. Right. And that's an express statement of that you're in the body if you're baptized. Um, if we step back from it, what the, what the credo communion, but 
Pado Baptist point of view is, ends up saying is we are creating a division in the church. There are communicant members and there are non-communicant members. Yep. That's the very thing that Paul right. is addressing in First Corinthians 11, having cliques, having divisions among yeah. you, be, not recognizing that you're all part of the body. That is the very thing he's addressing. And so what? how is it a proper theological conclusion to say, Paul said, be together, be unified, discern that you're part of the body. So we're going to make two different bodies of people, one that gets to eat and one that doesn't get to eat. <laughs> that is exactly the thing he's trying to fix. He says this. Now, I grant you, he's not talking about children. I think he, you know, we've already seen right. all these verses that do talk about children's participation in the body. But he's not, I don't think what he's not saying, your five-year-old can't discern the body, so he can't come to communion. He is talking about the adults that don't discern this. Yeah. Right? He's he's reprimanding, he's reprimanding the adults that don't understand that they're part of the one body. And by ind- by implication, that would mean that if you have children, you bring them yeah. as well. Yeah, the so, logic carries a, over. Yeah, and I think that uh, it, it is really strange. A person, if, if you look at the the New Testament statements about baptism, there are, I don't know, 20 or so. Um, they all require explicitly faith or repentance. You know, Acts 2. Repent and be baptized. Mm-hmm. Um, Acts 9, Saul, uh, arise and be baptized and wash away yourself. Uh, <laughs> the Corinthians believe and were baptized. Look at the, the, the epistles. Romans, you're united to Christ in his death and resurrection if you're baptized. Uh, Colossians, you have, you know, you've been baptized, therefore you've partaken of the circumcision of Christ, which probably means his death there, by the way. Yep. You're identified with his death. Um, 1 Peter 3. Baptism now saves you the appeal of God through the resurrection for a clean conscience. Um, I think I'm covering most of them here. <laughs> but it, it, look at every single verse that requires faith. And what does the Pado Baptist do? They say, well, like my argument, children are included in the Old Testament. Baptism is coming in the place of circumcision. It's not a perfect parallel, but it's the entrance right. Mm-hmm. God never put the children out of the church. He never says they're not included. There's plenty of indications that they are included. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 7, 14. There's a very strong evidence that households were the normal way that people were evangelized. Household baptism is included. There's six household baptisms in the New Testament of nine individuals we can name. I've already gone through that. So they say... Here's these 20 verses that require faith before baptism. We're going to, uh, based on our continuity principle, we're going to say children are still included, and therefore they should be baptized even in infancy. There is one verse about (laughs) I mean, there's one verse about this in 1 Corinthians 11. And people will say, well, but that, they're required to do it. Like what is Acts two? Repent and be baptized. The Great Commission. Disciples. Uh, Mark sixteen. Believe uh, the Ethiopian unit. You must believe with all your heart before you can be baptized. There are twenty verses that say faith is necessary. Yeah. Now all the Baptists are like, hurrah, hurrah! You're right, you're right. <laughs> yep. And my my response to that is what I've already said, which is okay. Let's just count who was baptized. Is this a principle? Uh, is this a principle of continuity with the Old Testament, or is it radical discontinuity and in individualism? 
Well, if six of nine are household cases, two of them don't have households, can't have households, and one is Simon the Sorcerer, I'd say that's a pretty promising set of statistics for the paid yeah, yeah. inclusive point of view. You know? But there's one passage, First Corinthians 11. And what's the point of the passage? It's unity that in the body. You are being de- you're being divisive. What's the statement about the unity of the body of two or two chapters beforehand, or one chapter beforehand in First Corinthians ten? It's that you are there's one bread. We who are many are one body. We all four. Notice this, verse seventeen. For we all partake of one bread. Yeah. There's no basis to make a communicant non-communicant group. As a permanent thing. Now, obviously, if somebody's disciplined or censured from a table, they are non-communicant by virtue of discipline. Mm-hmm. But to say, well, until you meet these qualifications that we have made up, you can't take communion. Well, there's no, of course, text that says children have to um, profess the faith before they they uh, take communion. There is only the misreading of 1 Corinthians 11, and it's one verse. Now, here's I got one more piece of evidence on this point. All right. Um, get your exegesis right of 1 Corinthians 11, and you will have no, if you're Pado inclusive with baptism, you have no leg to stand on with 1 Corinthians 11. Right. But here's the thing look at the very first statements in the book of Acts about baptism. I'm sorry, about, um, about the people of God. Um, Acts 2 42 and following, right? Yep. They, what did they do? They stuck to the apostles' teaching and they broke bread from house to house. They broke bread from house to house. It's, it's listed a couple of times there in the early chapters of Acts. Let me ask you, these are also like John Piper's houses with no children in them. All of them, <laughs> all of the houses in Jerusalem with thousands of people. And there are no children in these houses at all, right? Or they don't feed and, their and, kids. Or, or, or they would just know, they would just know as Jews who have just been preached to the promises for you and your children, they would right. just know that they have to exclude their children from communion because they can't profess to say like no this is the this is ridiculous i think the way that you have to think of it and i would just challenge any person that's struggling with baptism or communion and infant or pedo inclusion mm-hmm. just just do this imagine you are there in in pentecost you've heard of what jesus has done you are at pentecost because it's a festival and you have perhaps some of your family members with you or all of them yeah, or maybe you just live in Jerusalem. You're there for this familial festival, okay? And then you get cut to the quick by Peter's preaching, and you are a you know you get baptized. And now, okay, if you're there, is there any possible way that you've been a Jew, you've been coming to the temple, you've had sacrificial rites for your children, you practice Passover every year with your children? Um, you have circumcision of your children. You don't. You totally believe that your infant eight-year-old son is all the way in the covenant. I mean, you believe that. And now you go to Pentecost with Acts, you know, Acts 2, Peter preaching. And now you know, you're standing there. Imagine you're there. Imagine that's, your, that's you. What possible basis could you have for thinking that your children are not included in meals from house to house? I mean, nobody has said that. But Jesus didn't teach that. The apostles didn't say, oh, by the way, now children are excluded. Peter says they're included expressly. What If you just put yourself in that mindset, how could they have possibly thought their children were not included in the new covenant? 
all the joy of, you know, coming to belief in the Messiah who has finally come. And then you got to yes. look down at the kid on, you know, hugging your leg and go, but not you, bud. We got to wait. Yeah. I mean, I understand if we just roll the clock forward to the you know Anabaptist or something 1500 years later, but how could a Jew think that right. children were excluded? Right. How could a Jew in the first phase of the church think that the children were excluded? Well, there's an interesting argument that goes kind of like this. Um, it says, well, if baptism replaced circumcision, then why in the controversy about the, the, you know, the Judaizer controversy, why didn't Paul just say, look, they're baptized and baptism has replaced mm -hmm. circumcision? Well, read carefully the, I have a whole section of the book in, in my, uh, it's called uh, Covenantal Infant Baptism, an Outline Defense. It's online, okay. free for the taking there. And I, I, the whole thing is, if you read carefully what it's saying, that is exactly what is being said. Peter says, how could I not baptize Cornelius? Because he received the same spirit that we did. And what God has called clean, I cannot call unclean. He is saying baptism does replace the uncleanness hmm. of the Gentiles. Yeah. Um, here's another one. Here's another kind of, you know, little tiny, uh, you know, weight of, of argument. Uh, look at First Corinthians, I'm sorry, look at Acts 15. When the controversy of Ju the Judaizers came, they said, uh, it says, men came down and they were teaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. Right, and it says, "Who's the people that are being taught that?" Well, let me let me read it for you. It'll be a little more effective. Yeah, uh, if I read it for you. Um, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, "Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, debate, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they went up to the apostles and elders. Therefore, they were sent on their way. And described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were uh, received by the church. And then some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them to direct them to observe the law of Moses. It's necessary to circumcise them. Who's the them? It's the Gentiles who believed. That's the reference. Yeah. Gentiles are a great joy with brethren. Um, and they describe that the Gentiles who believed, uh, and then the, the claim of this debate of Acts 15 is the Gentiles who have been converted must be circumcised. Now, let me ask you, how do you do circumcision according to the law of Moses? Do you only do it with the males that are over 15? <laughs> males no, on the eighth you, day. You do it with children, right? Yeah. So they the, the point there is to say, uh, I, I've tried to make this point in debates before, and I have to have a hard time understanding this. The argument here is the apostles call the converted Gentiles them, and the converted Gentiles are proper objects of circumcision, including children. Therefore, when the Bible speaks of converted people, it's talking about their children too. Yeah, their children are included in this description. Otherwise, uh, the, the, the circumcision doesn't make any sense. We know what circumcision is. We know who it applied to. But he, they can re require and talk about 
collective conversion, which is inclusive of children. They can say the Gentiles who believed need to be circumcised. The Gentiles who believe need to be circumcised mean the Gentiles and their children, specifically, of course, males in this case, need to be circumcised. So it's collective language. And once you see that, then it's very easy to read all the statements about baptism and the requirement for faith and 1 Corinthians 11 and just see it as it's a collective description. They're, they're all part of the one body. They're all part of the church. Children are part of the church. Yeah. What, what grants you uh, a right to be part of the church? Uh, to be baptized and to be a participating person in the body and blood of Jesus. That's what, that's what you have to do to be considered part of the body of Christ. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The believers met, Acts 20, verse 7, in order to break bread. They were meeting in, from house to house, breaking bread. Uh, that, I think, is compelling evidence. Yeah, that's, um, that's really good, especially the, the, uh, the Judaizers argument there. Um, you know, if compared across with baptism, which it, which it seems to be, that's really, that's really compelling because kids are obviously assumed as part of that project. Um, yes. And someone, uh, Doug Wilson, I think brought this out in his book, 2000 generations, mm -hmm. um, years ago. And I think it's a great argument. He said, listen, look how the Judaizers re react to the claim that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. I mean, this is a huge controversy from Acts, 15, Acts 14, really, mm -hmm. all the way through. It's almost reflected in every epistle. Um, a lot of the book of Revelation, according to guys like Peter Lightheart, is talking about the Judaizers, so it's kind of a different interpretation, but he's he's referring to some of those beastly things as that. Whether mm -hmm. that's true or not, um, certainly, you know, it's, it's in Galatians, obviously. It's in Romans. It's in you know, it's even touched on in Ephesians. It's mm -hmm. touched on in Colossians. N.T. Wright says the Colossian people that are, uh, quote, proto-Gnostic, they're just the Judaizers. I think he's right about that. Hmm. That's a huge controversy, right? But what's the controversy? That people that claim to follow Jesus, that are Gentiles, need not be circumcised. Imagine if the apostles were actually teaching, oh, and by the way, Judaizers, by the way, Pharisees who believe now, your children are excluded. Yeah, <laughs> they're not part of the covenant. I mean, do you think that we might have had a little bit of ink spilled on that one? <laughs> right. if that was the teaching. <laughs> I mean, not only do Gentiles need to be circumcised, um, they would say, you know, that's because they're now they. That's the only way they can be clean is to have uh, male circumcision yeah. representative mm -hmm. of the household. So imagine if they said, oh yeah, they don't need to be circumcised. They got they got baptism to cleanse them. But just the bad news here is. Your children are no longer part of the covenant. They're no right. longer part of the church. They no longer uh, have promises directed toward them. That's the that's the apostolic teaching. Man, the fact that it's an argument from silence, but it's a pretty yeah, loud silence. Right. Right. There's no word about that whatsoever in the New Testament. And far from it, there's all these inclusive passages. Yeah. So I um, think that's a good argument. Yeah, that's good. We had a friend who actually... Um, grew up Jewish, and that was one of her biggest hang-ups because um, she was largely taught Christianity by Baptists, and she thought, "I don't want to be part of a religion that excludes my children. That's not a better. That's not a better fit for me." Absolutely, that's and, right. And yeah. it does. And of course, the Bible doesn't exclude children. I mean, the New Testament is explicitly inclusive of children in right. the church. That's yeah. why they're addressed 
their wives, their husbands, their children in the church. That's why they're taught. That's why they're uh, the object. Yeah. Uh, um, so I just had uh, two more questions that kind of go together. Okay. And in your estimation, why do you think this became such a big deal? And that could also kind of be why do you think um, – well, we'll just stick to that. Why? Why do you think it was such a big deal? And also, um, what have what have you seen is the the most common hang up most people have um, in your yeah. experience? Why is it a big deal? Well, let, let's just do a little historical survey. Okay. I know the people in the PCA that held to Pedo communion before anybody else. Uh, mm-hmm. Guys like Mickey Mickey Snyder, who made the motion to start the PCA, actually. Oh, wow. uh, he was a retired minister in Florida. Um, and I know where he got his views from. And then Steve Wilkins, who's who was a PCA pastor and is now a CRC pastor. Mm-hmm. These guys held it in the 70s. Um, they, they held a paid communion. There was one article that came out by Christian Keitel in the Westminster Journal, and he argued for paid communion. Wow. And People were batting it back around, and then denominations started to talk about it. Hmm. it, it they formed a committee in the, in the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. G.I. Williamson, who's a well-known writer on the, con, on the confessions and stuff, he was part of that committee. And that committee on the, in the OPC had a majority view, and they said, Pato Communion is biblical. And they had a majority view, and then at some point, the OPC said, we're going to table that. Wow. PCA had a, had a committee. That, that looked into it, and the, it was a minority view. And right on down the line, all these other denominations looked at it. And what's, what started to happen is there was this underground movement of people that, that held it, and it was not very well publicized in the, in the, seven, in the late 70s, the early 80s, into the, you know, into the 90s. Um, there was just a little bit of, of publicity on it, not much at all, not much writing on it, no book-length work on it. Hmm. Um, my my book was the first book length work on 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 uh, paid communion, and then there were two books that responded to my book, and tried to argue for the traditionalist uh, reformed view. Um, so it rose like that. What gave it a kick in the pants? What what gave it some fuel for the fire was this Federal Vision controversy, mm-hmm. because yeah. the Federal Vision controversy was hosted. The first conference was hosted in two thousand two at Steve Wilkins Church. He was a strong advocate for paid communion. Um, and he writes the forward to the book, by the way. Okay. Um, and and all of the men that came to speak were inclined in that direction, or at least toward early child communion. So all the men were more inclined in that direction. A couple of them became very popular on that. Steve Wilkins, obviously. Mm-hmm. Doug Wilson holds to the idea that you're, as soon as your child can fully participate in worship, they should receive communion without any formal profession of faith it's not quite pedo communion but it's pretty close yeah um and then uh as it as the other guys uh that spoke um they they ended up as well rc Sproul jr in the next year he was a very strong african community so what happened in the controversy is people began to say what is this controversy really about and a lot of people said it's really about pedo communion and then all of you know then it became you know, a controversy where people wrote about it on the internet and there's lots of blogs and all this stuff. It was in that context that I, you know, said, hey, we got to do a book on, you know, I've done this book yeah. on paedo baptism called The Case for Covenant uh, Infant Baptism. Now I should do one on Case for Covenant Communion. And so what ended up happening is a lot of people that were uh, inclined in the federal vision direction 
um, were also Pato communist, and that's what gave it some, you know, pouring gasoline on fire yeah. Yeah. to become more controversial. And then, of course, my book comes out, and so then people uh, address, you know, and address that and, and attack, you know, that. And then I think, you know, Liam Duncan and uh, oh, who else? Uh, the Venema, Cornelius Venema wrote wrote books in the last, uh, I'd say, ten years that were uh, defense of the traditional view. Yeah, I, so that that that's how I see it. That's how I see the yeah. the thing going. And also, since you know, for the last twenty years, a lot of mainline denominations have become pato inclusive on communion. So the Anglicans, uh, many Anglicans, it's permitted in in the Episcopal Church. Yeah. The Anglican Church, um, the the um, Methodist William Willimon, a very well known uh, theologian in the Methodist world. You know, some some Methodist churches practice it. Um, and as well as the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, they embraced it uh, a few hmm. years ago. Um, and then, you know, the CREC has been a, uh, we're we're very congregational in the sense that uh, you don't have to practice paedo communion or paedo baptism, for that matter, in the CREC. But most of the people that wanted the paedo inclusive approach migrated into yeah. the CREC mm-hmm. because they were being kicked out of the PCA, right. <laughs> like Steve Wilkins for <laughs> believing in Pedo Communion. Um, yeah. So, anyway. So, um, why? What was your, so you had another question. What was that? I guess in your experience of, you know, talking to people regarding this, I'm sure, obviously, since you've written the book, um, a lot of people have come to you um, expressing their hang-ups or like that final yeah, sure. last straw, I guess. what What is the most common thing and, and how would you respond to that person or how do you? Well, if, if, they, if they're coming from a Baptist point of view, I often hear this from the Baptist point of view. There is no example of an infant baptism. All the statements about baptism include a responsibility of, of belief. The New Testament is different than the old. It requires a higher level of spiritual qualification to be part of the church. And therefore, children are not to be included in communion because they are not to be included in baptism. Uh, That's popular in the Baptist world, just to kind of go through the typical Baptist responses to the New Testament's radically different than the Old Testament. Uh, Faith is required in baptism and so forth. Um, The the pedo-baptist who uh, does not, embrace pedo communion they have one argument and one argument only and that is first corinthians 11 means you have to be able to examine yourself mm-hmm. to partake of communion that's that's their that's the only argument and as i said the, it, it's somewhat uh ridiculous to me that <laughs> yeah. to become a pedo baptist you have to overcome 25 texts right. yeah. that save faith but to become a pedo communist there's only one text that could possibly say that and as I said, the proper exegesis of it doesn't lead you to those conclusions mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um, but that's the that's the one that I hear. I heard I had a guy uh, that I was talking to on the phone the other day who called me up, and he he is a, a full subscriptionist uh, Presbyterian guy, full subscription to the Westminster Confession. And he said, "No, I don't believe in paedo communion." And I said, "Well, give me your give me your argument." He said, "Well, there are two sacraments. One is passive, and one is active." He said. Uh, baptism is passive; it can be done to you. Yeah. You don't. Your faith is not required. And but paedo communion, the communion is, is a, communion requires action. It requires your self-examination. It requires you to participate. So my answer to that was, I, I literally took him through every verse in the Bible on baptism. 
<laughs> and pointed out that virtually every verse in the Bible on baptism requires faith or action or repentance. Um, I mean, even Ephesians 4, Ephesians doesn't have anything really about baptism per se, explicitly until you get to chapter 4. And it's, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I mean, the baptism is next to one faith. Mm -hmm. So if you can overcome the New Testament statements about faith and baptism, you surely on the same principles can overcome the, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, with the same rationale. It, it's really funny. I, I have an analysis of this in the, in the case for covenant communion, but I looked at Calvin's arguments and uh, tried to just work it out sort of polemically. But Calvin, if you read his, his arguments for infant baptism, they are the most comprehensive and compelling case. And hmm. really, nobody has improved. Nobody's come up with much new since Calvin. Yeah. I think I've contributed one thing new, and that is when you look at the purpose statement of the book of Acts, it's to send the the message from Jerusalem to the remotest part of the world. And the baptisms follow that. Therefore, the baptisms tell us how the gospel goes. And the baptisms are household baptisms. Therefore, Luke is telling us the gospel goes to new territory by way of household conversion. I think that's a that's a new one. I don't think Calvin had that one. Yeah. Um, and nobody has responded to that, by the way. No <laughs> response to that. Because um, they can't. And, and, well, I mean, you, it, it, nobody's going to argue that that's not the purpose statement. You know, Acts 1, yeah, 7, yeah. 8 is not the purpose statement. Right. And the baptism, as a matter of fact, do follow that pattern. And then there's six household cases in the New Testament. I mean, yeah. it's sort of like a factual point that I'm drawing, that what, what I'm drawing as an implication is, therefore, the church, you know, the gospel spreads by way of household conversion. In the, in the New Testament. But I think that um, when you look at these areas, I think people sometimes, they are in their tradition. It's different. They can't break out of their own way of thinking about it. And therefore, they're kind of stuck in, well, but and, and they've been taught right. on the sacraments in general. So American Christianity is just a terrible, has a terrible sacramentology. Um, most evangelicals do not think anything is going on in in baptism that is, you know, that's other than uh, a kind of, con you know, a profession of somebody's faith in the mm -hmm. water. Right. They don't think that, that there's a sacramental aspect to it. Um, and, and that's true even in the Presbyterian world. Um, the Presbyterian world, there is a lot of people that say, you know, that baptism and communion are just symbols um, and they don't do anything. One of my favorite questions uh, in the in the PCA world, I was a, on a committee that would examine guys coming in uh, for the, in the ministerial credentials and I would say uh, how do the, the, the that's, well, first of all, they would say, I believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith and so forth. What exceptions? Well, Pope is not the Antichrist or typical exceptions. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd ask them this question. I'd say, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? And they would say, they don't. And I'm like, okay, maybe you want to revise your first answer because <laughs> that is a shorter catechism question. <laughs> How do the sacraments be? And the answer is not, they don't. Maybe you want to take exception to that <laughs> statement. You know? um, and so that's what I found. Like in the, in the Reformed world, people have a low, low, low sacramentology generally. And therefore, that does not, it, the, 
the, the American landscape has been so affected by things like the Second Great Awakening yep. and a very strongly conversionist view of the faith. So you're not a Christian unless you have a conversion experience. You can't be, you know, a covenant child that grows up with an increasing understanding of the gospel. You have to have a, a you have to get salvation at some point by walking down the aisle, mm -hmm. or by becoming a hell's angel guy and converted <laughs> later, or by going to prison and, and you know. Yep. So there's just such a strong conversionist model that paedal communion doesn't make sense to people because. And and really, paedo baptism doesn't either. I just think we've got a little bit of traditional weight if you're Presbyterian or you're Reformed in the inclusion of children in baptism. But very often in in Reformed denominations, the whole baptismal account is this is what baptism is not. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't do this. Baptism doesn't do that. Baptism doesn't do this. So let's baptize this child. <laughs> it's yeah. like okay, well, you know, so it's just a weak, weak, weak view and um i think uh i'll give you one anecdote about that um so i edited the book case for covenant for baptism and brian chapel who at the time was president of covenant seminary did the first chapter and it's called a pastor's case for infant baptism and it's a very good chapter however he's he's trying to win people and he's doing it with a low view of the sacrament so he basically yeah. says Baptism doesn't convert anybody. It doesn't save anybody. It, you know, you baptize a child just because he's a covenant member, and maybe in the future he'll become a Christian. Right? That's kind of language. And so he's trying to prove in this chapter, he's trying to prove the sign of the covenant, Abraham's covenant, is is still operative. And he, he cites Galatians 3. And so he says, you know, Abraham, you're children of Abraham. And then he does an ellipsis, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then he finishes the, you know, the verses, you know, after the end of chapter three, you know, like you're in Abraham's covenant. I'm trying to argue there's a sign of the covenant that came in Abraham. And now that applies to baptism. Well, in the middle of the dot, dot, dot is the verse Galatians 3.27, which actually says everyone who's been baptized into Christ has clo have closed themselves with Christ. Well, he's trying to prove infant baptism from this passage, yeah. and he won't cite the verse that actually says something about baptism. And why yeah. only cite it? Because listen to it. Everyone who has been baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. Does that sound like a strong sacramental point of view? Or does that sound like baptism is just a symbol and maybe one day you'll be converted <laughs> to be a Christian? Yeah, you know, I mean, but he, it, it was just, it was funny because like he wouldn't cite the verse because he, I think he knew. Yeah, he that, knew. That would make people say, well, look, you know, Look at these people that practice infant baptism. They're like the Roman Catholics. They believe baptism magically saves you, you know, which I don't believe that baptism magically saves you. I believe what the Westminster Confession says about baptism, along with all the other Reformed creeds, which is that baptism is sacramental and therefore it confers the grace that it exhibits mm -hmm. to those to whom it belongs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, anyway, that I think is just the problem in America is you've got this low sacramentology, you've got this conversionist mentality on everything. And it's not biblical. I mean, that's just not what you see when you read about baptism in the Bible. All the verses yeah. about baptism are strong. Baptism does something. It unites you to Christ. It clothes you with Christ. It saves you. you know, 1 Peter 3, uh, 21, etc. But I have the joy, you know, we have a church that practices paedo communion, and um, not everybody in the church believes it, but after a while, most people come around to it. <laughs> but it is really an interesting thing to see, you know, we have children 
a lot of children in our church. And so it's really interesting. You know, you'll have this little baby um, that, in fact, I baptized this baby a, a couple months ago, young family, young couple, and this, this baby. And, you know, they would bring, we, we come forward to receive communion, which mm-hmm. I highly recommend as a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and when you come forward, you see people and you see this child and the child is there and the child doesn't know what's going on. And he's still, you know, he's not weaned or anything like that. And then you get to the place where, and I see this happen, this has happened to me in the last couple of weeks, we have some newborn children. You get to the place where the child is a few months old, and now you come up, and, and I hold up the bread, and they reach out for me, mm-hmm. and they can take it, you know? And it's like, hey, just brought in a new communicant member, you know? <laughs> and, and they're very, you know, they're very young, and so... But they know that they're they're participating in this. Yeah. But I don't feel any compulsion uh, to you know you know grind the bread up in the wine and make right. you know, yeah. make baby food out of it. I mean, I don't <laughs> feel that compulsion. I don't think that's what is right. intended. I think what's intended is as soon as children can eat, they know they're part of this event and they grow up with that with that view of being a per, you know a participant yeah. in the church. Yeah. And as I said, it it's happens when children are very young. And I, I love it. I mean, it's just a precious thing to hold up this little tiny piece of bread and the child just reaches out and gets <laughs> it and they know what to do with it. And I just it's a it's a great joy. Um and I, I don't get these I've had a few people come to my church. I had one guy that came one time. He was a Reformed Baptist guy, and he came to communion and he walked forward and he he rejected the the elements hmm. he's like he just stood there and he said no i'm not going to partake, partake. and afterwards i'm like what what's going on uh, he was a he was like a ministry leader in a college uh group and we had one of our students was part of that group and he they brought a bunch of students and i'm like oh well, well what's up with that and he said i cannot participate in communion where children that are desecrating the lord's supper are participating. I felt like it was consistent on my part to refuse these elements. And I, I just thought, how, <laughs> what, what Bible are you reading right. that comes to the conclusion that not only, you know, maybe you don't believe in paedo communion, I could get that right. because you're a Baptist, but like, uh, what basis do you have at the sign of unity of the body of Christ to come and reject a church's communion elements and the right because you disagree with how it's served or to whom it's served. Like that, that's the, that is like the worst of the worst as far as denying the purpose of communion. Yeah. The, the purpose of communion is unity. We're all part of one body. So we all partake of one bread. And if you're part of the body of Christ, you need to come and participate in this. And we have the privilege. We have a number of people that came from the Amish world. And I have served Amish people communion. And even in the occasion of one of their children that became uh, their uh, family that came from church and their child was baptized and all these Amish folks came in full regalia and they came forward and received communion. And one of my friends who's an expert on on the Anabaptist, he said, that has never happened in the history of the world. They they came to a a reformed minister and received communion from the hand of a reformed minister in the context of the Baptist. I cannot imagine that that's happened anywhere else at any time. 
and awesome. and he said it was so beautiful. He said it was so beautiful because it was <laughs> an expression of the unity of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think exactly. it is. To to close, I, I guess we could finish with this question, and you sort of were getting at it um, with some of the stories you were telling there at the end. But um, why why is it important, and especially like in the life of the church pastorally, um, why is getting this um, doctrine correct? Why is that important? Because I think some people may think um, you're just getting very technical and you're, you know, you're getting into the weeds with something. Does this even really matter? Yeah, I'd say it's important uh, liturgically because the church is to meet on the first day of the week to witness to the resurrection of Christ. And in the Bible, the only passage that tells us that says they met on the first day of the week in order to break bread. So I think liturgically, you should do it, and if you do it liturgically weekly, and you don't have children, the children are going to start becoming uh, very, very strong advocates for pedo communion. Um, <laughs> so you know, if if you're rejecting them from it, so I think it's important liturgically. I think it's important in what I would say is is um, soteriologically. Okay, soteriologically, by which I mean what I said before. If you have a conversionist mentality on on the Christian faith. So your child cannot be a Christian until they go out and sin a lot and come back and be repented. That is going to set you up for lots of bad things. Mm -hmm. And it's just not the way the Bible treats children. Mm -hmm. Of course, if a child, you know, whatever, becomes rebellious and then they come back to Christ and have a conversion experience, praise the Lord. Praise God for that. It's not to say that people can't have conversion experiences. But if the expectation is that your child that you're raising in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, the discipline and the culture of Christ, the word is paideia there, mm-hmm. you're raising that child in the culture of Christ, their their whole worldview is going to be shaped. And then, you know, of course, you have to call them to be faithful to what what their baptism says of them and what but if you if your expectation is they must go become a a terrible sinner, and then be converted, it's going to create a lot of problems. So that's so teriological. I think if you do paedo communion, you're safe. You're in, and now live it out. You know, you're in the body of Christ. You're in the church. You're included. Now live it out. Um, then the other thing is, I would just say, at a kind of pastoral uh, familial level. So if you tell your ch- children, um, as happens in some Baptist context, you're not a believer, you're not a believer, you're not a believer, you're not a believer. What might very well happen is they say, you know what? I'm not a believer. Well, <laughs> right. guess what? I'm not going to follow these rules you're setting up here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you've been telling me I'm not a believer. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live like I'm not a believer. Yeah. Um, so pastorally speaking, it's a bad message to exclude children from full participation in the church. And that would include communion, I think. It's much, I mean, my Reformed Baptist friends and I would, talk about this and i debated james white and these guys and i would say look these guys want a pure church they want a regenerate church i do too i do too so what's the best methodology to get faithful lifelong believers is it to tell everyone you're not in you're not in you're not in and hope that they have a radical experience (laughs) or is it to say you're in now be faithful to that and we're going to hold you accountable to to stay in Right, and practice this discipline on you to get you out if you if you do become mm-hmm. unfaithful. Which one is going to actually result in the best numbers? <laughs> you know, let's let's count them. <laughs> where where are you, where are you going to get to? Well, I think the answer to that is, from my 
you know, last 20 years experience, I would say I'll put my numbers up against the Baptistic vision of things and the conversion experience. I'll, I'll put the numbers up because I think we've seen a lot of, you know, faithfulness over over generations. Yeah, you know? I, I see that across um, churches like the CREC. In fact, one great example of that is uh, my friend Ralph Smith in, in Tokyo. Japanese, it's a terrible, terrible uh, attrition rate for Japanese churches. What happens is missionaries will go in, they'll get a church going, and then they lose their kids, like just like that. Dang. Well, Raph, Raph went over there many, many years ago, and he his 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 mind was changed, and he became completely covenantal in his commitments along the lines of what we've been talking about. And he told me a few years ago, he says, "We have we have every person that has grown up in our church now, children and grandchildren, are all faithful Christians. There was only one exception to that, and she uh, has just come back." And wow. so he said, we have seen the second generation. And he said, you don't, you have no idea how spectacular that is uh, in terms of missions to Japan. And I'm like, hey, because, you know, the covenant way of thinking, it works over generations. Of course, you know, God has his own purposes and, you know, we don't, we don't take for granted because we, you know, this is like Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10, just because you're baptized in the Red Sea and get the water from the rock doesn't mean you're, you know, you're, you're not going to be judged by becoming disobedient. So right. we don't take for granted that. I'm just saying, I think it's it very much accords pastorally with how it works to raise, you know, to raise children. And I'm, like I said, I have three children that are, that are in their 20s and they, they all love the Lord and are following him, um, again, by the grace of God. Um, and so... But I, I've seen this happen in, in you know, the context of our church for 20 years, and I think that it does actually make for pastoral transformation uh, with people to be fully inclusive and then to call uh, children growing up to account. You know, I think it's kind of interesting because I used to hear these stories all the time from people who said, you know, I was raised uh, Lutheran or, or even Catholic or, or maybe even Anglican or something, and they'll say, yeah, I was baptized as an infant and even went through, you know, confirmation. But then high school and college went totally off the rails, full, you know, headfirst into rebellion. And and then they had a conversion experience and came in. And before I would just go, oh, well, I'm so glad, you know, God saved you. And then now uh, when I look at it, I go, oh, the baptism worked. All right. Awesome. Well, this was truly beneficial and very, very helpful. And we really thank you for your time, Dr. Strawbridge. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Take care. All right, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed that interview. Did you enjoy that interview? Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot too. That man, just the amount of Bible knowledge that just pours out. And I know, just I'm just pours sitting out. taking notes, feeling <laughs> so very good. dumb. Oh, man, it's so good. It's <laughs> something I believe and I still feel dumb. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. I know it was long, guys, but... Thank you for hanging in there. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time, get woke. Yeah.
Let's start with the microphone check. One, two, first. Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church. The kind of things that few search. They say that the truth hurts. Well, this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth. First things first, can't neglect us at the start. I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart from original sin. The effects of the fall. The sin of our first parents brought death to us all. Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us. In him were all rebels and dead. Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a dark state. Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames. Left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames. Cause we're powerless to change. If you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily. As you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3. Verse 1 is my thesis, it's the deepest Truth that should get you speechless What scripture teaches will fill in the missing pieces Picture Jesus meeting up with Nicodemus Perhaps it was fright about the other Pharisees Wicked spite against Christ that turned this into naked night He called the rabbi and gave him props Said he was a teacher from God Jesus replied, made him stop Regarding the kingdom of God, no one's going in In fact, you can't even see it unless you're born again That must have consumed and stretched his mind Cause he said, can a man enter his mother's womb a second? Time? Naturalistically, the only way for him to hear it Jesus said you must be born of the water and the spirit No other way to enter heaven That sounds like Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 In this new birth, the spirit is the source and the agent The water symbolizes spiritual purification yeah. Flesh can only produce flesh, that's true and factual Regenerating work of the spirit is supernatural It's kind of like the wind, which is free East to west can't receive the steps You can only see its effects In the same way the Holy Spirit chooses who he pleases to sovereignly open their eyes to the truth of Jesus. For the spirit's mysterious operation uh -huh. We will all be under serious condemnation I'd still be rejecting the sun If God hadn't said let there be light Like Genesis 1, yeah And just like the light could not refuse to shine Irresistible grace has renewed my mind Let's exalt the king who died and truly is risen The new birth is not the effect of human decision But the cause, it changes our natural habitation and situation, it's a radical transformation I was cursed and polluted So my dirt was inexcusable with new internal his person is beautiful, his worth is indisputable The lamb is amazing, a standing ovation for his work in the crucible So let us respond with true worship and love To the God who has given new birth from above